Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. And our guest today, Tim Schultz, is president of the First Amendment Partnership, particularly focused on state legislation around the country dealing with religious freedom. We're going to get an update. Tim, welcome back to Freedom Spring. Always great to be here, Alan. And, you know, we sure appreciate your work. Let's start the show. Uh, give out the web address for the First Amendment Partnership and uh, give our listeners a quick heads up who you are and what you do. Yeah, firstamendmentpartnership.org, and the first in First Amendment is spelled 1-S-T. What we do is we work in legislatures to pass laws to protect religious freedom, that uh, religious freedom for both individuals and the groups uh, that religious people form. We work with uh, all different faith communities. We don't work on behalf of any one particular faith. Religious freedom has to be for everybody. And we have, our specialty has, as you mentioned, been in state legislatures. I've been over the last six years on the ground at over 30 uh, legislatures uh, working on these issues. And that's how you and I met in the capital of Nevada some years. That's right. That's right. I'll never forget it. Lobbying together. So, um, uh, the action this year was not, uh, I don't think you were in Nevada, but you were telling me about some laws that were passed in Oklahoma and Kansas. So right. tell our listeners about these laws. So there right now, and if I could just um, sort of back up just a little bit, is um, there is a case in Philadelphia right now that is emblematic of a broader trend around the country. And what the city of Philadelphia has done is they have said, the city will no longer partner. There's all kinds of kids in the foster care system in Philly, kids very much in need of adoption from very difficult circumstances. But Philadelphia will no longer partner with Catholic adoption agencies in Philly um, because the Catholic Church will only make placements to certain families, that is, the families that are consistent with Catholic views of, of the family. And so that means sometimes they won't adopt a single people, won't adopt uh, the people who have no faith, or in some cases, married uh, gay couples. Um, and Philly is saying, we won't partner anymore with this Catholic agencies in the city. And this has happened in other parts of the country, too. Well, some states, now the total is up to nine, have passed laws saying we are going to continue our longstanding practice of partnering with faith-based agencies. Um, and so the latest two states to do that were Oklahoma and Kansas. Um, in recent years, passing these laws has gotten a lot more difficult because even though these are technically state laws, they draw a lot of national attention and national opposition and money coming in against them. So um, both of these states did this um, just within the last two weeks. Um, these were laws that were both signed by their governors. They had a broad base of support from different faith communities. Uh, we were on the ground very much helping uh, pass those laws. Um, but they're big and nationally significant policy victories for religious freedom. Well, and to be clear, the faith community are not the only ones offering adoption services. So, Oh, um, right. Yeah, I, I agree. And so I, I think it, this, you know, my feelings about this would be very different if 
there were people that were being locked out, effectively locked out of the adoption process. So even in Oklahoma, which is one of the most conservative, you know, kind of quintessential Bible Belt states in the country, um, there are 61 agencies that operate within Oklahoma that, that essentially will help any kind of couple adopt, no matter what, couple or single person. I mean, they're fairly kind of open door policy. Um, so it, it, this isn't a question of people being kept out of the adoption process. If that were the case, I'd have a different view of these laws. Okay. And I think that's important because we're not advocating that faith-based adoption agencies be able to prefer placing, uh, well, kids with certain types of families in a way that would exclude people from being able to adopt. That's right. I mean, really, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, there really is a question. You can go the way Philadelphia has gone, or you can go the way, actually, most states go or operationally are doing what Kansas and Oklahoma just did formally through their legislature. That is, they have a practice that they work with faith-based agencies of all kinds, and, and they continue to do that. And that's actually over 40 states that do that. Um, well, I, it's just a I remember, yeah, I remember going back to when Boston first stopped working with, right. um, uh, you know, with the Catholic Charities, right? That um, I think Catholic Charities was doing like seventy-five percent of the adoption in the city of Boston, right? And there was just an enormous number of kids that were harmed, that were left high and dry because they yeah. would no longer work with with this adoption agency. And it's like, okay, uh, I get that, you know, there are others who by policy should be permitted to adopt, you know, the city or the state can make sure they provide services for everyone who is eligible to adopt. So during this whole process, uh, Governor Mary Fallon of Oklahoma, while she was considering whether she would sign the law, she got a letter from a scholar that we both know very well, a professor at the University of Virginia named Doug Laycock. And, and Professor Laycock is a, one of the best leading First Amendment scholars of his generation. He's argued multiple successful victories before the United States Supreme Court on religious freedom. He's also a supporter of gay marriage and LGBT rights more broadly. And he wrote the governor and said, hey, I have these uh, views on, on LGBT rights, but I really think this law protects both sides because I think this is about protecting both adoption agencies. But we know from the on-the-ground facts that gay couples have an ongoing right to adopt and are, are in no way being hindered from that right. And so um, functionally, a law like this does protect both sides, and I agree with Professor Laycock on that. So that's a big victory this year in Oklahoma and Kansas. What are some of the other issues that um, uh, you've really been been on your front burner? So the other thing, we've discussed this before, Alan, is the ongoing discussions about how do we find a both-and approach to religious rights and LGBT rights. That is, pass laws protecting LGBT people from discrimination, which is wrong and, and, you know, in most cases just should not happen. On the other hand, the law should also not punish religious groups and individuals for having views on marriage that are, you know, dissenting from the majority views of our society. And that's the balance that we're trying to strike. And that is an ongoing discussion in many states that has, you know, has, has gotten some traction in a lot of different states around the country and also at the federal level. 
Um, there are a couple questions that the courts are still up in the air on, one of which is your listeners know about is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that's before the Supreme Court. There's also uh, some litigation in federal courts about whether existing non-discrimination law already makes it illegal to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. The theory behind this is that this is a kind of sex discrimination to discriminate in this way. And I think that's a, you know, as a legal theory, I think it's a stretch. I think it makes some intuitive sense, but as a legal theory, I don't think it's at all what Congress intended um, back when sex discrimination was made illegal in the first place. But the fact that there are these kind of outstanding legal issues that the courts still haven't firmly resolved means that there are gaps in uh, in the negotiating uh, positions of, of everybody because we just sure. don't know where the courts are going to land. So, and let me jump in here, Tim, because I've I've sure. read it's been a while now, but I read um, some of the arguments on the legal precedent why the way the courts have been defining sex it makes sense to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And based on legal precedent, I have to tell you, I think those arguments are very convincing. Now, on the other side, of course, I think it's it's a given that when Congress put sex discrimination, I mean, if you go back to the history of Title VII, my understanding that back in 1964, when you know Lyndon Johnson was pushing to get the Civil Rights Act passed uh, in the memory of uh, the recently slain President Kennedy. And as part of Kennedy's legacy, there was opposition in the South, and it was a Southern senator who amended Title VII and added sex discrimination to race discrimination, thinking that that was going to heal off votes and defeat right. the bill. Well, Johnson, you know, was a very effective, uh, you know, former senator himself and knew how to work the system. And he got the bill passed with sex discrimination. I think it's pretty clear. Nobody in 1964, when they said sex discrimination, they were not thinking that that included sexual orientation. You know, it was still illegal. It was, you know, um, embarrassing. It was a career ender to be outed as a gay back in, you know, in 1964. So, you know, I think that there are, but of course the law has shifted. So there are certainly arguments to be made on both sides of that question. I think your point is that because all of this is in a state of flux, it's become very difficult to to negotiate some kind of overarching legislative solution until some of these issues are resolved in the courts. That's right. And, you know, for what it's worth, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to take one of these cases. Um, there was a case out of the Georgia that had been appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rejected an appeal of that case. So it's quite possible that, you know, in the end, the Supreme Court is going to leave this up to the, you know, to elected officials. And I think that's appropriate. And look, I, I do think that it's just to have our civil rights laws protect LGBT people from discrimination. That is the law in 22 states, the law in California, but there haven't been any state laws passed in the last decade um, except one, and that was in the most Republican conservative state in the union, Utah, um, and they did it in part because there were very broad protections for religious freedom in that law. And I, I really don't think that it will be possible to pass new non-discrimination laws 
um, in the absence of robust protections for religious freedom. And I think similarly, um, it's very hard to protect very broad-based uh, religious freedom rights um, in legislation if that's all you're doing. If you're only dealing with religious rights and you're sort of saying, well, you know, LGBT rights don't matter at all. Uh, we're just going to protect the religious side of the equation. That also has been proven to be a, a difficult, a very uphill climb. Um, so I, I'm sort of talking to you here as an analyst. I, I just think it's pretty obvious that, um, you know, these rights are nobody can kind of impose this on everybody else. And truthfully, most people have a position on this kind of functionally that they're they're kind of in favor of both. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason why we're looking to find a solution that matches how people actually feel about this. Well, and for the record, Tim, you know this, our listeners may not. I'm in complete agreement with you. And I will say that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been an active participant in efforts right. to craft a compromise that respects the rights of everyone to live according to their own values and beliefs, whether they're you know, identity is formulated by their faith or by their sexual orientation. And, you know, I've pointed out many, many times that we all have a sexual orientation. And as a lawyer who litigates these cases, I have seen Christian people discriminated against by gays because they're straight. And I've seen gay people discriminated against by straight people. So it, you know, it cuts both ways. Yeah, and I think that's right. I wish we had more time for this great conversation, but we're out of time. Uh, Tim Schultz, president of the First Amendment Partnership, 1stamendmentpartnership.org, if I'm correct. Bar correct. Partnership.org, online, check them out. So as we close, we remind our listeners here at Freedom's Ring, yes, we don't just talk the talk about religious freedom. We help those suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org, churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.